1: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver and welcome to the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second episode in our series on Franz Kafka and his great work, Metamorphosis. Uh, And before I forget, please let me remind you if you enjoy our work, text an episode to a friend or give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. It's through sharing that we grow and we hope our work is resonating as an educational resource and that it's worth sharing. Um, so, last week we talked about Kafka's life in the beautiful city of Prague at the cusp of the turbulent times heading into the turn of the 20th century in Eastern Europe. We talked about his family, the important relationships that influence his work. Uh, we talked about the title Metamorphosis in the beginning of this peculiar Kafka esque novella. The term we still use today when we're referencing bizarre things in our world, and there are many. We also mentioned the many different philosophical movements that were swirling around Europe at this time that had a tremendous influence on Kafka and his work. Christy, I know this is where you want to start us today, starting with the idea of worldview, so let's do it. What is worldview and why does that matter in regard to literature in general and specifically to Kafka?
0: Yes, that's exactly where I want to start, and yes, worldview does matter, actually infinitely so, and not just when we're talking about literature, but all of life, and it's worth understanding properly. Uh, The professor, Dr. James Sire, defined it like this. He says this, worldview is a fundamental orientation from the heart that can be expressed as a story or a set of presuppositions, which we hold either consciously or or unconsciously about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Now, that sounds like a dictionary definition. I know it does and something you'd read in a class textbook. But what it means is, How you see things in the world is dependent on a lot of factors inside your head. It's bigger than your morals or your religion or your family or your culture. But all those things influence how you look at the world. He calls it a set of presuppositions. Basically things that you really feel for whatever reason Uh, are true. And because you understand certain things to be true, you're allowed or you give yourself permission to construct an interpretation of the things that you see in the world. You're able to construct your reality. You're able to orientate yourself and build your identity, something that, of course, we all need in order to feel safe and be able to engage other people. And the reason why I bring this up, even though you could bring up worldview with any piece of literature, uh, is because, um, it is through certain lenses or you could think of it as like glasses. You put on certain glasses and, or you put on author's glasses and you can see the world a specific way, uh, and that provides you orientation. And it matters in this book because there are various ways that you could look at this book and that's how worldview is. There isn't just one worldview, view There are many ways to look at the world, and we generally don't see them sometimes if we're not thinking about it, because we always just have the one that we have, like our original one, and there is where fundamental disagreements often get started.
1: (laughs) And just a little heads up, this is where psychology will go. For sure. this whole idea of worldview. Uh, Of course, this is the kind of thing that philosophers have always discussed and really made Uh, mathematical schematas to explain uh, their ideas. And I mean, how do you ascertain what is true in this world? How do we uh, agree on what's important? Uh, Of course, there are a few things that we can almost agree are indisputable. Most of us, but not all of us would say this works great for teaching math. Two plus two equals (laughs) Four.
0: <laughs> for some of us, some That's of us still right. have trouble. <laughs>
1: we can rely on that. Some of us with bad masculine struggle. Uh, that won't change. And science is less certain, but we've tried to find scientific certainties that are almost as true as the mathematical ones. I mean, for example, um, I'm told that matter can neither be created or destroyed. It's a rule of the universe. And as far as I know, that has yet to be debunked.
0: I think it's good.
1: Disagreement and disputes uh, arise when we get into the softer sciences, the arts and interpersonal relationships, or even what we term real world. Um, How is it that two people can look at the same thing and see different things? Hence, worldviews collide.
0: I know. That's why when I have students... I say, you're right. And someone can say the opposite. And I can say, you're right, too. It's not math class. <laughs> so,
1: well, And what's interesting <laughs> with your students is that you're opening up their eyes to the, to the first time uh, in their lives that they even have a worldview.
0: Right. There's just not a right and wrong. And in, in my, I prefer, I would even prefer math to look that way, to be honest. But anyway, if you get to our website, you can see this really famous sketch uh, that I've used in class to, to illustrate what we're talking about. It's this optical illusion from a German postcard actually originally from 1888 but it was later adapted by a British cartoonist named William Ellie Hill he put it in a humor magazine in 1915 which by the way is the same year that the metamorphosis came out and he titled it my wife and my mother-in-law which shows you that the mother-in-laws have been around for a long time because when you look at the sketch and I know most people have seen it but if you haven't check it out on our website some people look at it and they'll see a beautiful woman And other people will look at it and they'll see a craggy old woman. And sometimes if you look at it one way, there's no way you can see the other way. And you could actually literally have an argument about what this is a picture of. I see it all the time.
1: And that occurs because of a phenomenon called perceptual bias. Your brain relentlessly tries to make sense of its environment and it uses all types of uh, perceptual shortcuts to do so. And of course, History is the story of how people look at basically everything totally differently. So what does this have to do with Kafka and his story about turning into a bug?
0: Well, for one thing, just like that picture, you can both be right. When you look at this book and you say this book means this, and another person says this book means this, you can also both be right. And I want to clarify that I'm go- what we're going to do today is talk about this book looking at it primarily through a lens that we're going to call existentialism, and that in and of itself is controversial for a lot of reasons. One of the things is, is existentialism really didn't come around until after Kafka was gone, but for me, looking at it through this lens helps make sense of this book, and it actually makes it a little bit more practical. Why does this book matter? How can it apply to my everyday life and I do think that this book has the potential to be extremely practical in helping us look at the world and even our own lives, believe it or not.
1: So can we safely say that Kafka was an existentialist before existentialism existed?
0: Oh, we can't safely say anything.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's the whole point of worldview. Hmm.
0: I dare not.
1: Uh, When you think about this book as being about human agency, uh, the importance of healthy relationships, the consequences of isolation, now it's not just about a bug, it's about all of us and people can begin to identify
0: exactly so Franz Kafka questioning life like so many but at this time there were men mostly men sorry not very women at this time but there were a lot of men that were writing about life in ways that really hadn't been done before some of these men were religious Christian Jewish some were atheists Uh, depending on their religious worldview, but they were all looking at modern life in Europe at this particular time and drawing conclusions about how people fit together in the world that had never really been drawn before. And Kafka was drawn to these conversations. He was reading all this stuff. And this book is his contribution to really is what... uh, This is going to be kind of like this historical dialogue that will end up eventually developing into a theory that a lot of people do call existentialism today, even though that really came about through that term with the French intellectuals a few years later. So uh, let me get into what existentialism is and why it matters and why it helps us look at this book Uh, in a practical way by introducing you if you have never heard of this man named soren Kierkegaard. now kierkegaard that's kind of a hard (laughs) word to say i know it's hard to say uh was a theologian he's a danish uh theologian and philosopher and kafka read his stuff a lot for one reason they both had very screwed up love lives and kafka identified with that but um Kafka talked about this idea, and he questioned the idea about what constitutes existence exactly.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. O- on the surface, it's a pretty basic question. Um, either this apple on the desk exists, or it doesn't exist. But then you think about it for one minute more, and it gets more weird. What about God? Does he exist, or does he not? What about People, do they exist or do they not? Uh, what makes you exist? Which is hence the term uh, existentialism. And when it comes to people, are we like an apple? Uh, we have matter, so we exist. Or are we like God, metaphysical with consciousness and such? Um, we seem to have consciousness in a body, but then the second big question: and how does this make us have value? Uh, apples don't matter very much in the world. Are we only? Uh, as significant as an apple because sometimes we don't feel like we are. And uh, do we exist because we take up space and breathe air? And is that enough to create value?
0: I know. And those are the deep things existentials like to think about. <laughs> uh, Kierkegaard is going to say, and there's going to be a whole movement that's really going to develop this idea any more, well, more than he does. And he's going to say, and I know I'm going to simplify a lot of stuff, but he's going to say, well, yes, you can exist. But You really don't have any essence until you exert some control over your life and you create some sort of purpose. He's going to say, you as the individual must create meaning for yourself. And if you don't, then no, there is absolutely no point in existing. So this is where Kafka enters into the story because I feel like Kafka is going to comment in this conversation. In the metamorphosis, we have this guy, Gregor, who turns into a bug. So does he exist or did he stop existing? He still has a body. He has a consciousness. Does he exist if he has a different body? Does that make him a totally different entity? And if he does exist, is he still Gregor? Can he still make meaning out of his own set of circumstances in this new life? And then you're going to ask the question, because I feel like he begs the question, well, did his life even have any meaning before he turned into a bug? Because if you look at this first chapter with these kinds of questions in mind, this book really starts to make a little bit more sense. At least it does for me. Um, Why does this dude, he's just woken up to find out that he's a bug, Why doesn't he freak out? He just seems to think back about his life and how much he basically hated what he was doing before that. He's not asking the right questions, at least from the reader's perspective. But you are going to be asking these questions. You're going to say like in your mind, at least I did, dude, you don't seem to care that you just turned in a bug. Why don't you care that you're not that you're a bug now? Why are you focusing on your job? Why are you worried about the alarm clock? Why aren't you trying to change back into the person that you used to be? What is going on, and why are you not freaking out? That was my thought.
1: Well, your thoughts are proof that you are now trapped <laughs> in Kafka's world.
0: Yes, because I cre- know. he
1: created an environment where he will not answer your questions. And he knows those are the questions you want to ask.
0: He knows I'm trapped. And th- the feeling of trapped, I think, is part of He's the part experience of, the, yeah, yeah. of reading it. Uh,
1: and, of course, the more you think about these things, the more difficult these questions are to answer. Uh, because what Kafka quickly illustrates through all of Gregor's inner monologues is something that is universal. I mean, in other words we are all like this in some ways and there could be no doubt that life gives us circumstances we didn't ask for and kierkegaard talked about this too every person to be born is born to a factual situation not of his or her own making it is uh in a sense you're a product of coincidence we're born into a certain country to certain parents brought up in a certain culture a religion we didn't choose with friends skill sets and obligations that we didn't invite but they're there
0: right and we're going to be a part of gregor's he lives at home in an apartment that he shares with a father who's stern a mother she seems a little stupid but she definitely (laughs) cries a lot and she does absolutely nothing there's this sister who loves to play the violin and she seems nice she's not a very industrious person necessarily The family used to be fairly well off, but the dad's lost his business, and now he seems to just sit around all day. They're definitely not a low-class family. They have a maid, so they have certain standards, but money is clearly a big problem in the household.
1: It is, and, and we can see all this pretty quickly from Gregor's perspective, and that this has changed the family dynamic. Gregor has had to assume the role in his family as the provider because his father lost his business and apparently both of his parents have poor health but Gregor gives all the money to his dad so really Gregor isn't really in charge. Gregor is a traveling salesman but he hates what he does he doesn't like the lifestyle, of the hotel life, but he makes good money, so he stays. And then he endures a lot of abuse. Apparently, it seems from colleagues at work, and especially his boss. Who, uh, and the only little glimpse we get to see of him sits at a big desk far above and glares down at everybody. I mean, there's a quote where he describes his work life. He says he was a tool of the boss without brains. Or backbone. Uh, It's also interesting to notice that he locks himself in his room at night every night. uh, Maybe trying to exert some control and create some identity. But whatever the reason, it's a detail that is a demonstration to keep people away from his personal space.
0: Right. Gregor goes to great lengths to say all throughout the first section that he's very committed to this lifestyle. He's not going to shaft his family. He's not planning on shirking his job, even though we find out when the manager gets there that things aren't exactly as well off as he's led his family to believe they were. Gregor, at least in his own mind, has told himself that he's in this set of circumstances that he can't get out of. He says at one point, Gregor was still here and had not the slightest of intention of letting the family down. To me, that's a quote that stands out. As, a, as I'm reading this. And Kafka is really skilled by putting this kind of irony into the text because uh, I find myself questioning, really, can you not get out of it? But he doesn't. I don't see Kafka really doing anything. Well, let me say this. I don't see Kafka's developing Gregor's character to do really anything about his own situation. His thoughts to himself and his actions are strange and sometimes they communicate different messages to me. Another important idea that I want to bring up from our man Kierkegaard, he seems to say uh, there's another side to things that we need to think about. So on the one hand, you do have a set of circumstances in your life that you didn't create and they can be good or they can be negative. In Gregor's case, his family, his job, their finances, uh, those were in some sense out of his control. But he Kierkegaard says, and remember, he's a theist, so this is a Christian perspective, but Sartre. The, Sartre? Sartre, yes. Sartre? Yes, that guy, the French as extensionalist <laughs> is going to arrive at this very same conclusion as an atheist later. But Kierkegaard is going to say, you have some agency as a human from God is going to be Kierkegaard's. Uh, assertion, Sartre's going to say you just do, is that no matter your circumstances, no matter how bad they are, you as an individual still have freedom to choose. That is your or our really fundamental essence as a person. And this is expressed through all the biblical narratives, but it's expressed in humanity itself. We have the potential to place ourselves in in relation to our accidental situation. So in other words, the situation could be accidental, but I have the potential to place myself in that situation. We can choose to own our situation instead of just being unwillingly determined by it. We can choose from new possibilities or we can just make up possibilities If the obvious ones are all crappy, kind of like if you don't want two plus two to be four, just make it two plus two equals five. So the existentialist would say, so we, we can make stuff up as humans. Some of us will have more options than others, but all of us have choices and personal power to reshape any situation. So let me put it this way. We can become more than what was determined by us or by whatever has been acted upon us. This is, he's going to use this phrase, when you realize this and you act like this, you are, quote, this is his phrase, becoming a self. As a human being, we have to take up our individual limitations, but we also have to take up our possibilities. So if you have that Kierkegaard perspective in mind and you're looking at Gregor and that to me changes how you see Gregor. He clearly has crappy situations. Uh, and I'm not talking about the fact that he's a bug, although that's not clearly <laughs> that's not a side good. Issue. <laughs> yeah, that but even before the bug thing, this guy does not like his life, but he doesn't even think that he has possibilities or even opens his mind to the possibility that he could have possibilities. He's told himself That his family depends on him. He can't quit his job. He has to stay this path. And to me, in some sense, that's why he doesn't freak out when he turns into a bug like most of us would have. And I'm going to speculate for a minute uh, because I have to ask this question. When Kafka starts the story, why isn't there an explanation about how he became a bug? There isn't an explanation at all. So in my mind, that can mean only a few things. Number one, maybe Gregor did it to himself. Or two, maybe he didn't, but he doesn't mind that he's a bug. Or three, maybe it doesn't matter one way or the other. Maybe his life was bug-like, isn't crappy, before he was a bug. And so now the bug is just a different crappy. It's not all that different. And maybe that's the most likely option. This seems to be an explanation about why he's asking these questions and not the obvious question of how, what can I do to make my body come back? How do I get out of this bug-like shape? He isn't interested. He doesn't even consider that he has power or potential to change anything, not even being changed into a bug and then change out of that. He doesn't seem empowered to be thinking along those lines.
1: Well, I want to reference back to the first episode on this book. Uh, In the first episode, we laid out the idea of the dehumanization of the new industrial world that he had grown up in. And and that that seems to be what he wants to project in this book during his time period. And one of the aspects is that people, because bureaucracies were massive, people lost a sense of self-efficacy. They lost a sense of agency. uh, And it's been reflected in this work, I think. And uh, so there's something negative in how Gregor has viewed his own life up to this point. He doesn't seem to have said no to much in his life. I mean, to the point that when he turns completely into a bug, he doesn't say no to that either. And here he finds himself as a bug and doesn't even feel alarmed. I mean, there's a lot to think about there. And in a sense, when he woke up to be a bug, maybe it's not even all bad. Like it or not, the people in his life are going to have to fend for themselves now, his job, his family. He's given it all up and he can claim it's not his fault. Because he's a bug. And from one point of view, I mean, there's a positive element to that. If you're in a place in your life where you hate your life, you can uh, see inaction and inactivity as an actual blessing.
0: Right. And I do think when you talk about this being a result of industrialization, that lots of people look at this book as kind of an expression of all that going on. And clearly that's where these ideas originally came from. And so when we get to this place... And we think along those lines, um, there it is. Like, has he had meaning in his life up to this point? In some sense, he has. He's a provider for his family. He actually does have a purpose. What happens, though, if he wants to give that up? It's interesting that the whole way through the book, Gregor always thinks of himself as a person. Like, he doesn't think of himself as a bug. But we're going to watch him slowly lose his personhood or his essence. In fact, in each section of the book, Gregor loses something significant. The first thing that is going to go, obviously, is his body. But then you're going to see that he loses fairly quickly, although not immediately, his ability to communicate. Um, He does, I couldn't quite understand if his parents or understood him originally through the door there was some sense that they seemed to but they understood very little and then that went away he also still thinks of himself as the man of the house in part one but we're going to see that in part two he loses his job and then he's going to lose of course his standing in the family so then we have this next big existential question if a person does not take responsibility for himself or for those around him what happens does he lose his essence does he just become a thing among things kind of like the apple does he stop to exist kind of if that's how you want to look at it i know that (laughs) it can make your brain fry when you start (sighs) thinking along these lines but but it's the kind of questions that I think these guys sat around and thought about.
1: Uh, they really did. And those questions were prompted once again by the dehumanization of modernization that was going on in our worlds. And, and this is where I think Kafka displays a special uh, genius. I mean, what you described is really a weird thought. But when we turn it into a story about a bug, it sort of makes sense. I mean, Gregor wakes up, finds out he's a bug thinks about his job and how much it stinks, doesn't think about shafting anyone. In fact, I mean, throughout the entire first section, he's committed to keeping it to the point that he's going to chase down the manager who comes to get him from the office. And in his mind, it's an attempt to keep his job. But yet at one point when he's trying to get out of bed, which is no small feat, he says this, in spite of all his miseries, he couldn't repress a smile at this thought and what was the thought? It was the thought that he'd locked himself in his room and no one could come help him even if he asked them to. So in a sense, there's an idea of the liberating potential. I mean, but what's the result of that long term?
0: Exactly. So you're free from this problem, but then you've got others. When I read chapter one, I just get more and more frustrated with Gregor in that room him of,
1: and his lack of yes, agency. Yes,
0: of course. And Kafka is so deadpan with his style. It's this third-person narration. Like, it's a bureaucratic document that you're reading. There's no emotion from Gregor. There's no panic. There's no desperation. But I feel anxious. And I want to say, open the <laughs> door. Get help. But when he does open the door, there's no help. The reaction is primarily horror. And they're angry, which I guess maybe would be understandable. But the word used to describe Gregor's father is the word hostile. Gregor's father is hostile to him. And this brings me to the main existential idea that we see all over this book, this idea of isolation and alienation, because really, that's what's going on. He's alone.
1: Again, more industrialization and modernization. And Truly, though, people simply cannot tolerate isolation. They can't live like that.
0: No, and we see a clear picture of isolation at the end of chapter one. Gregor is not the provider he once was. He isn't the tool of the office. He's not the workhorse he's been for this family anymore. So what do they do to him at the end of the chapter? The family hostily pushes him back in his room and notice that they physically hurt him. He's driven back and at one point he cries, mother, mother, but she's going to reject him. He snaps his jaws and she screams, she flees and falls into the father's arms. And I point this out because the way that I just said it can make you feel sorry for Gregor, but the way that Kafka writes it, you actually really don't. His mom just rejected him, but the way that it's written in this matter of fact tone, you're going to say, well, of course she rejected him. He's a bug. What else would she do? It's freakish. It's scary. But by the time Gregor is back in the room, we'll see that one of his flanks is scraped raw. There are ugly blotches against the white door. And so I don't know what that is, except maybe like bug goo, or you know, when you squash a bug, the black stuff stays on the door. He has a leg that's dangling and trembling in the air, and he's bleeding profusely. And because his dad pushes him with a hard shove, the text says this, he flew far into his room. The door was slammed shut with a cane. That's an extra, you know, weapon. And at last, after all that, it says this, everything was quiet.
1: Well, that last line to me is incredibly interesting, especially if you think this book is not just, literal fantasy but perhaps a metaphor for how people actually feel i mean so let's say you're that person who's become a bug and you have dropped all the expectations of your family in your world you make a decision either by your choice or maybe you get busted and it's not your choice but you are suddenly a different person and your family thought you were and you become disgusting to them and you knew you would be if they knew that you were a bug, and they behave exactly like you always knew they would. Your work world runs away. Your mother and father totally reject you. Uh, I mean, perhaps even violently, but then you're alone, and your first thought, at last, everything was quiet. I mean, there's a stillness there. It's, uh, it's Now they know I'm a bug, and, and now I can have some peace and quiet. So this negative independence for the short-term could be a very positive and even a liberating experience, but carried out over time, how does it play out? How long will you enjoy that kind of quiet?
0: Well, I'll tell you what Kierkegaard says. He says this is good for the short term, but if you allow that you know, negative, I guess, independence turn into a permanent attitude, then it's not gonna be good. He's gonna say, and he does use that phrase negative independence he says it's a short-term necessity but it's definitely not a long-term solution the American thinker Lewis Hyde says this it says it has only emergency use carried over time it is the voice of the trapped who have come to enjoy their cage which I really like that metaphor it's interesting you don't ever think about Wanting to admit that anyone could enjoy a cage. But in a sense, if you stay in a cage, you're never responsible for anything. It's a lazy man's attitude toward life, but then again, there's a part of all of us that wants to be lazy at some point.
1: Um, and I think this is the foundational issue of a lot of clinical psychology <laughs> and therapy getting people to look at their cage, own their cage, admit their cage. And decide what to do about their cage and uh, but anyway if, if we want to go back to our discussion of Madison and the Constitution I know that was unexpected uh, it's the idea that it, it's easy to break something apart it's easy to criticize it's easy to complain but how do you build something better what do you do if you take the responsibility upon yourself to make something in your life and and how do you have meaning if you're not building
0: and that's going to take us to part two of the metamorphosis because Gregor has come out of his room. He's presented himself as a bug. Now what? And we're going to be introduced to several things right off the bat. First of all, I thought this was so strange. He falls into a coma-like sleep, which, again, annoys me. <laughs> He's not
1: fixing his bug problem.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, he just goes to sleep it off, ignore the problem, and see what happens. And, of course, we all know how that feels. You want to do that if something's really bad. But that aside, there's more going on here. We can see that he can and is actually getting comfortable with with this new status quo, and he's not going to fight it at all. The text says that he's beginning to appreciate his antenna.
1: <laughs> the grief. grief. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's a point I want to make. It's interesting to me that you can never get a firm picture in your mind of what Gregor actually looks like. I mean, at the beginning, it seems he's a bug uh, that is just as big as a human, and and here it seems he's quite a bit smaller, but we see he has antennae and lots of little legs.
0: Yeah, and that's a bit of a side, but I think it's a great point. Uh, If you feel like you're confused, or that you're a bad reader, which is what I thought when I read this the first time, (laughs) and I kept rewriting or drawing in my mind what this bug looks like, uh, you're not confused. When Kafka's book was first published in 1915, Kafka was very emphatic when he was talking to the illustrator about the cover. He says this, the insect is not to be drawn is not even to be seen from a distance instead he gives recommendations that they should illustrate the family or something else like that but unfortunately i really don't like the <laughs> cover the the original cover features a perfectly normal looking man dressed in a house coat looking distraught as though he might be imagining this terrible transformation but not actually experiencing it we have a picture of it on our website or you can Google it. I guess Kafka liked it because he kept it. But anyway, back to chapter two and what your point is about uh, the bug guy, Gregor. He has antenna. He has little legs. And finally, we're going to see that that's not all that's changed about him. His tastes have changed. What used to be his favorite food, milk, is now apparently repulsive to him, so much so that he can't even make himself drink it, even though he's starving.
1: There are a couple of different dynamics that I want to bring up uh, with this first little scene in Chapter 2. And first of all, we see the sister, Greta, reaching out to Gregor, and it's clear that she loves him. And Greta is taking initiative in a relationship, not Gregor. Uh, Gregor does nothing. He complains about the food, and he says he now has time to consider how best to rearrange his life. But it is Greta, really, who's going to take the initiative.
0: That's true, and I want to point something else out, too. She's not the only one taking initiative. They've gotten into that room, I guess, while he's asleep. And they have taken the key from the inside of the room where he had it originally, and they've put it on the other side of the door. The text even points out that the beginning, everyone was claiming to get into the room, but that power dynamic has just changed. They control the key now. Not him. He's given that up.
1: It's interesting. The key has moved from the inside of the door to the outside of the door. Probably an important idea to pay attention to. And um, and and here's the second point about Greta. Greta is actually showing compassion. I mean, she's bringing in food, and it seems to terrify her. But she, you know, when she does, but she gets her courage and she goes in. She tiptoes in while Gregor watches her from behind the couch and. He's behind the couch, and this seems to represent some sort of shame or, or guilt, or at or minimum, at least, shame. He won't come out. He won't even connect. And what he does is hope that she notices that he doesn't like the milk she left him and brings him something else to eat.
0: And again, I know I keep saying this, but this annoys me. There's so much about him that bothers me. Are you me. <laughs>
1: annoyed by... People who don't take agency.
0: (laughs) I guess so. He doesn't want to take any initiative in getting his own food. He's just going to see if she brings him something that he likes better. And guess what she does? This brings up another thing to notice. When she picks up the bowl that has the milk in it, she won't touch it. She has a rag on her hands to protect herself from Gregor, from his germs. She's grossed out, obviously, bitterness. I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: she's repulsed. But uh, but in a sense, this is a, a first in her relationship. I mean, she's doing for him. And up to this point, it seems that he's been doing for the family. And so now there's a power shift.
0: And we're going to see a pattern somewhat emerge between these two characters. Greta brings out an array of things to find out what he likes, what he doesn't like. And then she's going to leave. Gregor won't come out until she has left. And in his mind, he says it this way. He, he stays hidden, quote, out of a sense of delicacy towards her. So she won't have to look at him. But at this point, as you can tell, since I've been annoyed with him pretty much for this whole book, I find this suspicious. It seems he doesn't want her to see him or him to see her see him. So they never interact directly and that is how their interactions are going to be from here on out and i don't know maybe it's because there's he's a bug or maybe there's some sort of metamorph a meta- maybe there's some sort of metaphorical reason for this but I, he doesn't like fresh things. That's a point to notice. He doesn't a
1: metamorphosis like. metaphorical. <laughs> <A statement. laughs> yes, so many syllables right there.
0: Uh, indeed.
1: Well, uh, first of all, we see that he is being stripped away of everything that had made him him, uh, his taste, his preferences, and uh, the things that make us unique as a person. And uh, those are gone. I mean, he's eating spoiled things and. Uh, We're seeing him being cut off from everything. And, of course, this is just another form of isolation. And even in what used to be family relationships, there's not a single level of intimacy anymore.
0: No. Greta cleans up after him. She sweeps and she makes the space tidy. And that's compassionate, but that's all that there is.
1: Well, yes. And what we also see is a sense of repulsion. I mean, she's repulsed and... He's ashamed. And I also think it's important to note that Gregor, for the whole book, but it's brought up here, he understands everything they say about him all the time, but they don't know this. He listens to them talk about him. He runs to the door and listens to see if they're talking about him in the other room, and they don't ever know that this is the case.
0: True. And what he finds out, at least one of the things that he finds out, first of all, that the maids quit basically because of him she uh, wants away from the repulsiveness of this and he finds out that the mother and sister are having to do all the hard work that she used to do so they're cooking they're cleaning when Gregor was around and providing for them you know they didn't have to do that and now he's watching life without them or out without him and they've made adjustments the other thing that I think is interesting to note, and this is really difficult to understand, or at least to interpret for me, is we're going to find out that the finances in this family were not the way Gregor had thought they had been. There has been a deception. Let's read about this.
1: In the course of the very first day, his father explained the family's financial situation and prospects to both the mother and the sister. From time to time, he got up from the table to get some kind of receipt or notebook out of his little strong box he had rescued from the collapse of his business five years before. Gregor heard him open the complicated lock and secure it again after taking out what he had been looking for. These explanations by his father were to some extent the first pleasant news Gregor had heard since his imprisonment. He had always believed that his father had not been able to save a penny from the business. At least his father had never told him anything to the contrary, and Gregor, for his part, had never asked him any questions. More agency. In those days, Gregor's sole concern had been to do everything in his power to make the family forget as quickly as possible The business disaster, which had plunged everyone into a state of total despair. And so he had begun to work with the special ardor and had risen almost overnight from stock clerk to traveling salesman, which, of course, had opened up very different money-making possibilities. And in no time, his successes on the job were transformed by means of commissions into hard cash that could be plunked down on the table at home in front of his astonished and delighted family. Those had been wonderful times, and they had never returned, at least not with the same glory. Although later on, Gregor earned enough money to meet the expenses of the entire family and actually did so. They had just gotten used to it, the family as well as Gregor. The money was received with thanks and given with pleasure, but no special feeling of warmth went with it anymore.
0: Well, Gary, what are we supposed to make of that?
1: Well, um... For most people, this would have been understood as a betrayal, and it would have created outrage. Uh, Gregor has been working all this time, basically for the family, and it wasn't even necessary. I mean, uh, in some sense, his father was letting him believe a lie and letting him work harder to support the family. But, you know, Gregor says to himself at first that he's delighted to do it. But this is a massive betrayal and a massive lie on the part of his father, to lie about their finances.
0: Right. And, you know, there's this idea that they've gotten used to it. So there's this expectation. He doesn't seem resentful at all, which would have been my big attitude at first. <laughs> uh, if we read onward, actually, instead of, you know, resentment, he goes the other direction. He says this. Now, this money was by no means enough to let the family live off the interest. And he means the money that the dad had been stashing secretly. The principal was perhaps enough to support the family for one year, or at the most two, but that that was all there was. So it was just a sum that really should not be touched and that had to be put away for a rainy day, but the money to live on would have to be earned. Now his father was still healthy, certainly, but he was an old man who had not worked for the past five years and who in any case could not be expected to undertake too much during these five years, which were the first vacation of his hard-working yet unsuccessful life, he had gained a lot of weight and, as a result, had become fairly sluggish. And was his old mother now supposed to go out and earn money when she suffered from asthma, when a walk through the apartment was already an ordeal for her, and when she spent every other day lying on the sofa under the open window gasping for breath? And was his sister now supposed to work For all her seventeen years was still a child and whom it would be such a pity to deprive of the life she now led up until now, which had consisted of wearing pretty clothes, sleeping late, helping in the house, enjoying a few modest amusements, and above all, playing the violin. At first, whenever the conversation turned to the necessity of earning money, Gregor would let go of the door and throw himself down on the cool leather sofa which stood beside it for he felt hot with shame and grief.
1: Hmm. Interesting that Gregor is taking responsibility for everybody, but won't take responsibility for himself. Uh, he feels uh, shame and he feels guilt and he feels guilty that his dad's going to have to work, that his mother's going to work and his sister will have to go to work. And uh, the circumstances of Gregor's demise is going to force them into some kind of action that, uh, that they'd been using him for up to that point.
0: For me, this is the one point in the book where I actually feel a certain amount of empathy for Gregor.
1: It's about time.
0: (laughs) I know. I get mad for him, even though we don't see him getting mad for himself. How could they have let him go through this and not help? It's outrageous. His father hasn't worked for five years. He's gotten fat. Except Gregor doesn't express outrage, just shame and guilt because now they have to go to work. And that makes me mad too. And for a second, I think, well, Gregor, what are you going to do now that you know, now that you have this information? And then I read, what does he do? Well, he lays there not sleeping this time. He takes a tiny bit of initiative and he's going to push the armchair up to the window and he's going to look outside. And he says that the story says this, he would crawl up to the window sill, propped up in the chair, lean against the window, evidently in some sort of remembrance of the feeling of freedom he used to have from looking out the window. For in fact, from day to day, he saw things even a short distance away from, less and less distinctly. He's going to do nothing. And in fact, he seems to be losing his vision.
1: And that brings us back to existentialism. Uh, For existentialists, what gives life meaning uh, is choice. And Choice is always an action where we connect to reality in the world. I mean, choice always means taking responsibility for a certain commitment to the world. And uh, it's through that choice, through that connection to reality, that we find our personal power, if you want to use that expression, or we find our, our value and our meaning. And what we see happening here, it seems, is the exact opposite of that. Choice also means paying attention. It means attending to something in the world. And it seems that Gregor is not paying attention and he's losing his sense to even see the world. I mean, he's losing his sense of freedom.
0: To get back to this expression, he seems to be starting to enjoy his cage. Kierkegaard would say that's not that great. (laughs) (laughs) But he's not suffering too much. All of his needs are being provided for.
1: That's true. True. Um, well, we've introduced a lot of heavy terms and a lot of heavy ideas. I mean, we've talked about what it means to have existence, the idea of isolation, shame, and deception in all two chapters.
0: I know. Kafka has covered a lot of ground in 25 pages of relatively plot free bug story.
1: <laughs> plot free <laughs> bug story. Uh, well, uh, There's a whole lot more to say, Uh, so we hope you'll come back next week to finish uh, with us this interesting take on some of the darker places and being a human. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who might like it. Also, give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Be our friend on Instagram and Facebook and visit our website, HowToLoveLivePodcast.com.
0: Peace out.